Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and I'm not going to lie, I too would be pretty distraught to be one episode away from the finale of my favourite show, only for a cyber attack to usher in the downfall of all civilization. I mean, there's no good time for the digital apocalypse to bring society to its knees, but right when you're about to find out whether Ross and Rachel finally got together, the timing of that just seems cruel. These are all, of course, allusions to the fantastic Leave the World Behind, a new Netflix disaster movie written and directed by my guest today, the tremendously talented Sam Esmail. Leave the World Behind deals with themes that Sam himself has found impossible to leave behind in the eight years since creating Mr. Robot, the techno-thriller piece of prestige TV that announced his talents to the world. That show warned of the ways that society might grow fragmented and open to exploitation the more it hinges on technology. Now Sam's back with another tale that highlights the dangers of digitalism, shining a light once again on how quickly our technology-dependent society might be dismantled with the click of a button with the right line of hacker code. The film stars Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke as parents who escape to a Long Island vacation home only for a stranger and his daughter, played by Mahershala Ali and Mahala Herald, to turn up unannounced in the middle of the night bearing tales of electrical blackouts in the city. It's a film that speaks very much to the anxieties of our time. In the years since Sam created Mr. Robot, we've seen Russia hack the 2016 election and Cambridge Analytica influence the Brexit vote here in the UK. We now live in an age where it is very possible for global superpowers to digitally disrupt the democracies of their rivals. So maybe the question isn't why Sam would go back to the themes of Mr. Robot. Perhaps the real question is, why wouldn't he? In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, which covers every important plot point from this great movie, Sam discusses the huge departures made from the Roman Alarm novel on which this story is based. We get into the severity in real life of a cyber attack of this magnitude, and of course break down why the TV show Friends has a massive part to play in Leave the World Behind, resulting in one of the best movie punchlines of 2023. A huge thanks to Sam for being such a fantastic guest, and a massive thank you also to our Patreon supporters. If you like what we do on Script Apart and want to see the show continue to grow, you can join our Patreon community today for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee. 
In return, you'll get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and the chance to ask your questions to upcoming guests. Not a bad deal if you ask me. The address if you'd like to get involved is patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, with that all out the way, let's get into it, shall we? This is the brilliant Sam Esmail discussing the first draft secrets of Leave the World Behind. A huge thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demet. Sam, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Massive congratulations on Leave the World Behind. I had an absolute riot of a time with this film. You know, I've read you describe it as a story with no hero's journey and no moral, but I've got to say, the last shot of this film, Sam, I definitely took a moral from. Physical media is important, people. When the cyber apocalypse comes, you know, you're going to want those DVD box sets. Well, then I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. If, <laughs> if, if the moral of this movie is physical media roles, then I'll happily accept that. <laughs> well, it really is such an accomplishment, Sam. And I realized on my second watch, kind of a singular movie as well, like uh, the disaster movie genre that this, I think, fits into. It has quite a long and storied history, but there really haven't been a huge number of disaster movies in which the disaster is digital. So, um, yeah, maybe let's begin there. Was was that one of the things that drew you towards this tale, Sam? Like the opportunity to cover new ground and to add a new type of disaster to the disaster movie canon? Yeah, in fact, I, um, I'd had that idea before I'd read the book that I wanted to, I wanted, because I'm such a fan of the disaster genre. So I wanted to do a, a disaster film centered around the cyber attack because I feel like even though everyone sort of is aware of that term, it's a, it's a little it even it's ominous but mystifying. I don't think people understand exactly what that might look or feel. I don't even know if I understood it. So it was something that I was curious about, and I thought would be a great uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, foundation for a, a good disaster flick. And and then I read the book, and I think I think what was great about the book were these like really fascinating characters that. Um, that with their own sort of unconscious biases uh, and their their sort of uh, disconnect from one, one another, they start to kind of crumble and they kind of like parallel what's going on in the world around them. And I just thought, wow, what an interesting inversion of the disaster formula. Because disaster films tend to, you know, prioritize the spectacle, right? The, yeah. The, the, that tends to be front and center and the characters tend to be secondary. Well, here in the book, you kind of found the opposite that um that the characters were front and center and that and the disaster elements were more in the distance and that just felt more real to me and relatable and um in a way and in that way more terrifying <laughs> um and so I, I combined that with this kind of cyber attack idea that had been in my head and i just thought it you know overlaid this this story that Ramon had written so beautifully and uh, yeah and away we went uh, you mentioned there how we don't really understand what a cyber attack is, what it would look like, where yeah. it's unfold. Can you tell me about some of your homework in this subject matter? I, I feel like uh, Leave the World Behind feels like it's something that, that could plausibly happen. I'm, yeah. I'm hoping you're going to tell me that, no, that's not the case. It's completely fabricated. No. Well, look, I <laughs> the reason why I wanted to explore it was because it was a fear of mine, but um, but I also didn't know exactly what that would look like. Um I'd over the years read articles warning us that this was going to be, I think as, you know, as early as the early 2000s, Panetta had even said the next 9-11 would be a, 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 a cyber war or cyber attack. Um, so uh, there had been a lot of like uh, uh, theorizing about what it would look like, but um, in, until I decided to, okay, put pen to paper and, and say, okay, how am I going to dramatize this? Um, and then I just found all this research and, um, yeah, everything, everything in the film came from that research because I really wanted to make it as grounded as possible in terms of what is potential, like what could potentially happen today. Um, and what's interesting about it is you're not necessarily witnessing in the film, you're not necessarily witnessing a direct, uh, cataclysmic attack 
you know, sort of event from the cyber attack itself. It's the sort of residual effects of the cyber attack. Like take, for example, the oil tanker that grounds on the beach. Well, that in and of itself is not necessarily killing people or causing some, you know, disastrous uh, thing to call to, to, to the infrastructure or anything like that. But if it, if it kind of dis disarms us from fuel, well, what is the, what are the ripple effects of that? So it was these kind of reverberations of a cyber attack that was sort of weirdly more insidious than sort of a direct <laughs> attack. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, of course, are no stranger to stories about how the more our world becomes reliant on technology, the less reliable it's rendered. When you finished Mr. Robot, did you know that you had unfinished business in that kind of thematic space? Absolutely. I mean, look, I think technology has exponentially developed over the last, I mean, I can say 20 years, but honestly, five years even. Um, and it's had such a massive impact on society and how we interact with one another. Um, and I feel like there's it's such a uniquely modern dilemma that has so many facets. Um, in fact, if you watch black mirror, uh, that's, that's why they get, they have so much mileage to tell such great stories because there's so many different angles to sort of explore the impact or the, or the effects that tech technology ha ha has on, on ourselves. But they're sort of doing the, the five minutes into the future version. Whereas even like today, just the tech that we have today and what, and, and what it's sort of, uh, and it's what its impact on society is today. I just think there's so many different angles. And for whatever reason, I've been always gravitated, I've always gravitated to stories about that. And maybe it's because I don't see a lot of it uh, in my TV or film diet. Um, so it's one of those things that I've just, um, I've just always been drawn to. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should talk for a minute, I suppose, Sam, about the real life events that this movie either dovetails with accidentally or is perhaps even in direct conversation with. Because, you know, you sold this movie in July 2020 and it was after that that you went away and wrote the screenplay. I'm not sure the exact chronology of when the movie was written and when it was that you went into production, but... Man, 2020 heading into 2021, when presumably you were grappling with this story, that was a time in which, you know, collectively, we all got a real front row seat to just how precarious it all is, just how easily all things could collapse, you know, between COVID and then January 6th. Were those sorts of real life events playing on your mind as you sat down to write? Do you, do you think you channeled them either consciously or subconsciously? You know... I had read the book during the pandemic. Uh, it was like the early days of the pandemic. And this shows, just shows how prescient Rahman was in writing the book because he wrote, wrote the book prior to the pandemic. But it felt so connected to what was going on because the theme of the book that really um, spoke to me was this idea of how easily we can lose sight of our common humanity in the face of a crisis. And, and that was so resonant. And, and, and I'm looking out into the world at the time and how we're reacting to the pandemic where in a moment where we really needed to sort of come together and figure this out, we were doing the exact opposite. We were sort of, it was, we were using it as a way to divide us and retreat into our own corners and our own echo chambers. And again, I just found that such a uniquely modern dilemma that, um, that uh, that I just uh, I, th I felt Roman was scratching at something about how we have to navigate our modern world and um, and as relevant as it was when I read it then uh, it's equally relevant today with everything going on in the world I feel like it keeps happening and um, so when you yeah I would say yes in general it's not a specific news story but it's it's sort of the way where humans are now expected to behave in the face of crises is that we just end up pointing the fingers at one another. I just have never felt it so palpably before this time. And um, so of course that, that was part of, yeah, of course that influenced my, the writing and, and the making of the movie. So, you know, we, we spoke a moment ago about how this is a disaster movie. You've been looking for a disaster movie project for a while. Can you talk me through the ways in which like, you know, the, the movie kind of satisfies the demands of the genre while also kind of 
adding something new to the canon. Like we, we already spoke about how a cyber attack isn't something that we've seen in this genre before. Uh, you spoke about like the balance between spectacle and character and wanting to upturn that. What else would you say uh, is the film doing in its kind of in in the dialogue that it shares with uh, with the disaster movie genre? Well, I think the t- I think tone is everything, right? And I think, um, and I think with with this film, I wanted to be careful about not being derivative of uh, of the kind of um, you know music or or sort of tropes that the disaster genre uh, inherently has and 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 that's really just because when you're doing something that's suspenseful and you're creating tension if the audience starts to be ahead of you then it's kind of game over for you uh, the whole idea is is that they um uh, you know that they want to know what happens next but they have no fucking clue what happens next. <laughs> uh, when you have them in that position, I think they're they're going to be on for a ride. And um, and the the way to achieve that really is by subverting their expectations with tone, and that's all created through ambiance, the set deck, the music, um, you know, adding humor in moments where you don't expect it. Um, um, and really, again, making it feel as lived in as possible because, um, like I said earlier, a, a disaster film really uh, to typically really uses the characters as simply as avatars for the spectacle. And here, here we're trying to invert that process where the characters are the spectacle. Their kind of interaction, their dynamic, and their kind of conflict that's, that arises is the parallel to what's going on in in, in the world around them, and um, and that was so that so I would say in, in those ways it sort of breaks the formula of what you would typically see in a disaster film. I want to get into some of the beats from the movie, but first, Sam, I hear you write very quickly, and that the uh, the kind of vomit draft for this film tumbled out of you in like two weeks or something, right? Which is surprisingly quick because like, it's not like this film is a direct translation of the book into film form. You know, as we've been talking about, you were grafting your own fears and your own fascinations onto Roman's story. You were changing characters around. Ruth in the book is, of course, G.H.'s wife, not his daughter. Right. Can you talk me through how you started to kind of map out all those changes and some of the rationale behind those those choices? Yeah, you know, I don't outline. I, I like, and this is part of the reason why I like a vomit draft. I I like things to be um, like on the, uh, like kind of sort of ed- on the edge of my mind. And I wanted to just kind of bleed out and come out as fresh and a, as little interference from my brain to to the computer. And, um, and so, um, so when I read the book, well, I first read the book as a fan because I just wanted to enjoy the book, which I which I loved very much. And then when I read it the second time, I immediately saw the changes that I would make, um, the cyber attack component, the Ruth component, um, and other little changes, uh, you know, especially as it ends in the third act. Um, and uh, I, I first brought up those changes to Roman, and once he signed off and kind of understood that, hey, this was just going to be sort of a recontextualization of the book, um, he he was obviously uh, getting his blessing was obviously paramount for me to do this. Um, I kind of then went away, um, kind of didn't think about it for a while, and then um, and then later, a couple months later, when I was ready to write. I read the book again. I remembered all of those ideas. And usually that's like a test to me, right? If I can remember an idea two months later, I didn't write anything down that there's something to it. It's sticking in my mind that, you know, it's, it's, there, there's something about it that is, is speaking to me. So, um, so then I immediately as fast as possible, get it down on paper. Um, and look, the vomit draft is a terrible draft. It's not, <laughs> l- let me just say that up front. It is not a good version of the script, but it's the freshest uh, material in my head. It's the, it's, the, it's got the kernels and gems that I'm looking for. And then from there, like in a skull, kind of like imagine sculpting a piece of rock into something, then you start to chip away and you try and find the truth of the story from there. And that's sort of been my process. I kind of can, I guess I kind of consider the vomit draft a little bit like my outline draft. Yeah. And I know you're a big Kubrick guy and, uh, presumably 
his approach to adaptation, uh, you know, the way that to him, books were always vessels for his pre preoccupations as a storyteller rather than stories to be adapted faithfully. Uh, it seems like that's something you either inherited from him or you just happened to share. I didn't know that, but I completely agree with him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, look, if something's working so well in a literary medium, it would be really odd to think that that would work as equally, equally as well in a cinematic medium um, with, you know, that, that without any changes, I mean, to do a one-to-one -one copy of that to, to me makes no sense. So I never subscribe to this idea that you have to be faithful to the source material because it's, it's working in that medium for a reason. And, um, I think when you have to adapt something into another medium, um, first you have to find a compelling reason as to why you're adapting it. And usually that means because there are changes that you want to make that, um, that maybe can impact the story more or recontextualize the story more in that new medium. And so uh, for me, it's all those changes that I saw in the book that I immediately said, oh, I see the movie here. But if I were just to see the movie as a Xerox of the book, I would probably say to myself, well, just read the book. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to make a movie about it then, you know? Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to Kubrick because there are, there are a few Kubrickian flourishes yeah. to this film. Um, th this first draft, this vomit draft, was it roughly the same the same story? Were there different set pieces, different uh, iterations of characters that you explored for a moment before you landed on the finished version of this I would film? say that the set pieces were largely the same. I would say that the differences were in the dialogue and in the characterizations. Um, that's where I, I, I feel like it was really rough and I needed to find my way through it. And, and usually I try and do it that in multiple passes because I had, you know, six characters, well, really seven with Danny, but, um, but six main characters throughout the film, you know, I would kind of, I would kind of read, read the script and do a pass from one character's point of view and just solely be in their head. And I would listen to the music they would listen to. I would, um, I would kind of do a little backstory about them. Um, and, um, and then I would kind of read it through their eyes and, and then sort of do their work on their kind of arc and their dialogue in that way. And I would just kind of repeat that process as I ran through the whole movie from every point of view, because, you know, weirdly, you know, and this is a, another great kind of staple of the disaster genre that I love is that they're, they're typically ensemble cast of characters and it's kind of this gives you this sort of affords you this sort of panoramic view of whatever the crisis is. And I, and I love that. It's part of the reason why I would changed Ruth from the wife to a daughter. Cause I really wanted that sort of Gen Z millennial uh, point of view, especially given how sort of timely, uh, you know, uh, this kind of disaster would be, it would it'd be weird not to have that kind of, you know, dimension into the, into the, um, into the, into the cast of characters. Um, so yeah, I kind of, it's kind of a repetitive process, but like, I kind of want to get as close to each person's sort of mindset as possible before I, before I start to work on their, on their story arc. You mentioned backstory there. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Did you have mapped out for yourself, even if it's not going to appear in the film, backstories for for the characters yes but also kind of a, a wider context for what's going on because of course in the film it's sort of withheld from us we kind of get snatches of of answers and there are things that we can guess towards as this is what's going down D did you know that or did you was that was that kind of not important to you because really it's about the characters and their experience of it they don't know so why why should you as the author I suppose? exactly i would say that for me it, it was more important to keep the integrity of the characters and their backstories as real and as human as possible. But when it came to the disaster elements, I wanted to be with the characters. And the more I know about who's behind it or what's causing it or what the motivation is, uh, the more I think it would contaminate, I think, the spirit of the movie, which is that we're really in the dark with these people. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's uh, let's dive into some scenes. Um, there's so much to discuss here. The film begins with this shot of Earth, Sam, and you know, of course, it's a big VFX shot that costs money, so, so it's obviously not in there by accident. Same again with the shot later in the film uh, of the American flag on the moon. 
can you talk to me about why you chose to start the movie this way with that visual that uh kind of puts it all into perspective how how i suppose like small and meaningless well, that, the that, is. well there you, you just said it. i was about to say exactly <laughs> what you just said i i love the idea that um that that perspective is everything um especially again i, I know i keep repeating myself but in a disaster genre you are thrust into the thick of the action um typically you're that's the ride that you signed up for but here the perspective is so about these people and the disaster elements are off into the distance and um and so for me when i decided to open with the planet i wanted to show the perspective of us in this sort of black oblivion almost this black void and that here we are and it's just this blue dot in the middle of space and this is all we have and um and monumental things can happen to us intimate things can happen to us but regardless of what it is we've got this one rock that um that we have to find a way to coexist on and i thought i thought that really mm, kind of mapped out uh what the film is really about which is ultimately it's something that's said between uh, amanda and ruth in the shed later on when ruth says you know i agree with everything you said about people but we're all we've got and i think that could be in, interpreted as really shitty or that could be interpreted as um uh, optimistic and hopeful that we've we've got to figure out a way to um to coexist and 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 come together but um but uh, yeah i love just setting the table of the film with just a, a snapshot of our home you know and that leads us into this cold open with amanda and clay amanda has some really intriguing dialogue in this uh in this opening, like she's very restless, very agitated. Um, she describes how it's been such a hellish year for us, as you know, and I just seem to be working every day without realizing it. And you are constantly anxious about your job. She walks over to this window and begins to describe being awake at sunrise, observing all these people starting their day with such tenacity, such verve, all in an effort to make something of themselves. It kind of goes on like this. Uh, she says that she remembers what the world is actually like. And then she comes to a more accurate realization. I fucking hate people. I'm really intrigued by this opening because it doesn't feel like that feeling that Amanda's expressing is, is localized to her. There's quite a few characters in this film who are experiencing before the disaster strikes, you know, their status quo is one of dissatisfaction or some lack of fulfillment in their lives. Can you talk to me about like uh, why that was interesting to you, much more so than the idea of, you know, th this being like an idyllic family with an idyllic life and that being what's interrupted in this story? Well, I wanted to start as early as possible in Amanda's arc, but really also begin the theme, begin the sort of the arc of the theme of the movie, which is that it's in, it's in the title. It's we're we're, ha we're you know these characters are ha having this feeling that they want to run away they want to run away from people they want to leave the world behind and that's the dramatic question that i want to set up that that then we kind of poke and prod at throughout the rest of the film and um and for me what was interesting about her saying that line i fucking hate people is how many people might relate to that <laughs> um and again i think that's sort of a uniquely maybe it's not so unique i mean maybe i'm just speaking on a turn here but it feels very modern to have that sense that we're not as connected with our fellow humans as we as we maybe were before and you know you could point to you can blame it on tech you can um you know sort of blame it on the uh, uh, uh sort of the uh, effects of tech but it's it's ultimately something that i feel is palpable right now and so as much as i i thought it worked for the our characters and the story and the theme i found it also kind of universal uh it's kind of an anxiety that i think that I think is out there right now that, 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 that the film sort of triggers right away. We then watch the family on their drive to the rental home, which again, I'm going to bring up Kubrick again, uh, reminded me of The Shining. Sure. Uh, yeah. Along the way, 
we get to meet Rose and Archie, who are Clay and Amanda's kids. You've described all the characters in Leave the World Behind as products of the modern world. I was wondering if you could unpack that phrase for me and uh, yeah, how you wove that into this introduction to those characters with Rose glued to her iPad and right. Archie, I think, playing some sort of video game. Yeah, well, that's all that's that was it's all in the car, right? You open on Amanda and she's on a call. Um, you get to Clay, who's, you know, uh, listening to music. And and then and then Archie playing a video game and 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 uh, Rose on the iPad and I remembered when we we did that shot and I'd watch it back um, talk about something that's uniquely modern that could not have happened at any other time at any other time in The Shining or in Funny Games um, they had to talk to one another they couldn't just play a sophisticated video game. I guess you could in the nineties with a game boy, but outside of that, really not, you could definitely couldn't watch a, a TV show. Um, and, um, and you know, if you go back in the eighties, you couldn't be on the phone. Um, so th this was just sort of setting up the template that, um, that, that, that our use of technology has divided us in such a way that a family going on vacation just as innocuous as that, taking a road trip to uh, to this weekend getaway, are all in their separate universes. They're all in their separate bubbles, and it's normalized. It's not out of out of the ordinary. I think if you showed that image to someone thirty years ago, it would be extremely odd and strange. Um, and I just found that to be a very interesting observation that I thought really set up the the sort of theme of tech and our reliance on tech. I should also mention like that there is nuance to your approach to tech in this story and in your larger body of work. Like th there's a more positive side to what tech enables, the connections it can foster that uh, you definitely also find room for in your shows and in your movies. You're not just saying tech is bad. Can you talk to me about the the kind of philosophy behind that and how you get the calibration right on the page? Like when you do your first drafts, do you sometimes find yourself going too hard on tech and then kind of pulling back and having to add in that balance? T tell me how you find that nuance. Well, it's weird because I actually, I just, as a person, I fundamentally believe that tech is, is just a tool. I don't think it's good or bad, you know what I mean? In and of itself. I know that from Mr. Robot and now, and now this, people could maybe say that I'm a technophobe or that I, I find the tech to be the villain of our world. I don't know. It's the, it's the, it's how we use it. It's the human side of it that I'm more interested in is that why is it our instincts? Why is it our instinct to use tech in this way to, uh, to seclude ourselves in these bubbles or to, use it to kind of divide one another or to use it to instigate a war, you know, why, why are those, what is it, what is it about that? What is it about the human condition that makes us lean into that? And, and so in a weird way, when I did all that stuff about all, basically all the, the runner with Rose and that opening scene in the car, that was all in the vomit draft. And they're innocuous. They're, these are innocuous moments. I didn't think I was overdoing it. I think that was pretty spot on to what how <laughs> how families might look nowadays um i've seen it i've witnessed it and it's again i want to repeat it's normal i remember on my instagram um and i don't really use instagram much in fact i think i kind of basically stopped using it years ago but um but i remember i would when i first started using it i i, I found it funny that when i would go out to dinner with friends um there would be moments we're literally at the dinner table and everyone's just on their phone no one's talking to one another. Yeah, and I would yeah. just snap a picture and I would post it on my Instagram and I would say, you know, this is what dinner is like in 20. <laughs> and, um, and we would go out to drinks and then it would, the same thing would happen again. And this would just naturally occur. And it's unspoken and it's just kind of the way of the world. And I find it fascinating. Is this what we've always wanted to do was to check out and we just couldn't before because we didn't have phones? Or is this something driven by the fact that we can do it now? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, I find it infin infinitely interesting. What is also infinitely interesting is the house that we arrive at. Uh -huh. I know yeah. it is such a cliche to you know talk of a space as a character, character yeah. 
that really does kind of feel true. Like uh, if, if we talk about characters as these changing, evolving things, unless I'm going insane, the house itself is changing throughout the film. There is, there are paintings on the walls <laughs> that seem to be changing shape. Even the wallpaper seems to shift. Like again, if you'll permit me one last Kubrick <laughs> illusion, like it reminds me of the way in The Shining that, you know, there's this geography to the Overlook Hotel that's purposely kind of confusing and yeah. distorted. And right. that just places this sense of unease in your subconscious as you watch. I'm not imagining this, right? This this is a, a part of the film. Yeah, look, I... the. Uh, the way I will answer that question is, um, well, twofold, you know, I I've always, and this is from the writing and the, and the plot beats, but also from the way we filmed it is I wanted this film to feel like a nightmare, like a nightmare that starts off as a dream and insidiously sort of starts to morph into something darker. And that, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a dream like that where it doesn't start off bad, but as it gets as it gets further and further down the road, it just starts to boil into this like nightmarish, you know, outcome. And I, I, I remember that, that that's a feeling and that kind of defies logic. And I remember knowing that, you know, when I, when, when we went to make this movie, that that was very integral to the tone of what I wanted to achieve. And so, you know, when I, so the second part of the, my answer is that when I, um, and I do this with everything, but you know, when you work on a scene with the cast, you know, there's your dialogue, there's your blocking, but, uh, and you have that conversation, but, but then there's the conversation about subtext. It's all the things that are not being said. It's all the things that are not on the page. And that's that mainly the actors work and we talk about it and, you know, they can say a line, but the way they say it could completely change the context of that line. And um, so subtext is really important because that's how life really operates. Um, and I wanted I do the same thing with my visuals. So when I speak to my production designer, um, there's the setting, there's the look of the house, there's what would they actually have, you know, the sort of common day, you know, appliances and um, furniture and that kind of thing. But then like like with my cast, I then we then talk about subtext. Well, what is lurking underneath it? And so um, and so those conversations sort of lead to that thing that, you know, you're probably feeling <laughs> throughout the film. And 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 that that conversation really started with this this idea of this needs to feel like a dream that's turned into a nightmare. And when when that happens, logic needs to be fungible. And had you done something like that, theoretically, with the paintings, which we can neither confirm nor deny, um, would that normally come in at like a later point after the script is locked? Or are you literally writing that on the page? No, no, that, that's, you know, those kinds of conversations. I would, well, you know, some of it was on the script, but mostly because I'm not a production designer and I don't pretend to be. Uh, that's something I lean on my production designer Uh to you know to come to me with ideas and 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 have a conversation with her about before i before i would put it on this on, on the page mm -hmm. the boat crash that we've already alluded to um that's the kind of first real announcement of something being awry here um it's interesting though for for all those moments of of big spectacle like the plane crash later on in the film i think the most unnerving moments in leave the world behind kind of the the animals like the uh first the deer then the flamingos there's kind of a brief explanation that we hear about you know some sort of environmental disaster down south causing strange migration patterns or something like that if, if that's the kind of narrative uh explanation of, of what we see in terms of those animals what do you think they represent thematically to you i think they're they're a warning um you know on a very metaphorical level and then this is how I read, interpreted the book and, and, and sort of what I, my intention behind it in the film was Rose to me symbolizes, you know, our youth, the, the, the future generation. And, um, and they're warning us that something about the planet, we're, we're, you know, that we're not going to have a planet if we keep going the way we're going and everyone ignores them. And we just kind of keep going along as if, as if uh this won't happen and we're ignoring the warning signs and i and i remember on on that kind of 
um, journey that Rose goes on, uh, it was really important to me to sort of have her symbol and, and that relationship with the animals to have her symbolize that tension that we have with nature, especially given the fact that we are so embroiled with our tech that we're ignoring our kind of human side because our human side is the is the natural world and we're kind of moving away from that to go into this more you know man-made artificial technical side um and so in that way in that metaphorical way that to me is what the animals are representing they're they're a flashing red light to say that you know there's caution ahead and and i think unfortunately most of the characters in the film ignore it except for rose G.H. and Ruth then turn up at the house, Sam, and Amanda is immediately full of suspicion towards them. That suspicion, the film makes apparent, is definitely rooted in unconscious bias, like in, in racism, essentially. And, and this is a really interesting kind of strand of the movie. The film seems to be exploring in the backdrop of the disaster elements, something about what disaster turns us into. There are a few moments in the film early on in which like these characters, Amanda and Clay, who you suspect might normally regard themselves as probably quite progressive, they act towards people of colour in a less than hospitable way. So as well as Amanda's microaggressions towards G.H. and Ruth in that scene, we get that moment in which Clay has that encounter in his car with the Spanish-speaking woman on the side of the road who he just leaves in like, you know, her moment of panic. He does nothing to help her. Can you talk to me about like, uh, yeah, what you wanted to interrogate with those beats in the film? Because it it feels quite pointed. Uh, That scene in particular with Clay um, and the woman on the side of the road um, was in the book. And what I loved about that scene and what I really wanted to capture, and again, this is just a microcosm of what I think all the characters are going through, is um, in the face of panic and in the face of crisis who do you look out for what do you do and um and i think in that moment um yes she's hispanic clay can't understand her and instead of finding a way to uh to bridge the gap finding a way to uh to connect with her um he does what he the only thing he knows how to do which is to protect himself because he he let the fear of the unknown you know sort of take over and honestly that's just this that's just this microcosm of what i think the book and what we were trying to do with the film um we just expanded on a kind of first on like on a level of these six characters in particular but really on a societal level um do we let uh our sort of differences feed into our fears which then kind of divide us and then have us retreat into these corners and if that happens are are we doomed then to to sort of fail i mean i would argue yes and so why is that what are what are what is going on in that because i will say in that scene as uncomfortable as that is um it kind of puts you in the position as an audience member, what would you do? It invites that question. And I think, I think a lot of people would be torn. I think a lot of people might've, uh, might've done what Clay did. And maybe a lot of people wouldn't, but that's the idea is to bro- provoke that conversation. I think it's important as well that um, both Clay and Amanda have moments of reckoning with their behavior. I think Amanda kind of acknowledges to GH where she let herself down in terms of her response. And Clay has that moment with Ruth later on in the film where he kind of, in this kind of confessional way, talks to Ruth about that experience. Um, that's That seems quite like a uh, purposeful, like it's a generous reading of how like sometimes in these kind of like apocalyptic stories, like the message is not particularly generous. It's uh, one of like humans are by design, by default, they're kind of fragmented and and tribalistic. But the fact that they both Clay and Amanda kind of have these moments of reckoning suggests that that's not, that's not built in. It was these, these moments were kind of informed by panic. Absolutely. And it's not as simple as, uh, humans are terrible and we're tri- tribalists. I don't believe that. I think humans are messier. And I think particularly in in sort of 
uh, in modern life, I think, I think, I think there's a lot of confusion about how to behave and how to act because of the influence that tech and social media and, and everything else going on has on us. Um, and it, and it's, and it's causing us to fear and have panic. Um, um, but in no way does that mean that we should paint all these characters with one brush and say, well, they're just terrible and they're just tribalistic. I think they can be terrible and they can be tribalistic and they can feel guilty and they can be warm to one another and they can want to connect to one another. And they're, they're all of these things and they're complicated. And it's, it's that, that to me is what feels more true to life. Yeah. And, and not only does Amanda kind of reconcile with GH, but they share this moment together. I mean, first and foremost, I did not know that I needed to see Julia Roberts dancing to Too Close by Next, but I'm, I'm glad I now have that in my life. Um, yeah, they, they then almost kind of share this this embrace, this moment. Yeah. Can you talk to me about like what's happening in that scene? It, you know, th and this is the thing that um, I think with disaster films or even thrillers in general, um, you know, there tend to be moments... Moments like that don't really exist in those movies. And for me, what felt real is that in a moment of despair, um, especially if you think about GH's point of view there, he's all but, con you know, accepted the fact that his wife is probably dead, you know. Um, I, I, think, I think in those moments is when we need a release, and we need to act silly and we need to just distract and, and run away and not think about it. And, um, and, and I, I love that dance sequence because, um, it's such a desperate moment for connection for the two of them. They just, they just need to be held. And it's not, I don't never, I never thought of that moment as a romantic moment. It's a, it's a, it's a yearning for, feeling human with someone again. Um, and, uh, and, um, and, and I love that it happens in this like comical way because, <laughs> you know, look, tragedy and comedy are very linked together for a reason. I think as humans, we need to laugh when we're uncomfortable. And, um, and, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think that that's where that scene came from. It's just a, a, a finding a way to get these two characters to sort of disarm one another and, and and come together in a in a in more of a cathartic release uh, rather than anything else, you know. Yeah. Well, of course, everyone needs a bit of relief when your son's teeth are starting to fall <laughs> out. Um, I love. I mean, the nightmarishness yeah. of of that scene yeah. is one thing. It also kind of from a narrative perspective leads us towards the the kind of Kevin Bacon character in the story. Um, it, it leads us towards Danny who's this character who is in a, in a like ensemble cast of different perspectives. It's uh, another, another different perspective. It's this hoarder kind of character who's been prepping for something like this for a few years and has this kind of paranoia that he, he carries with him. Um, can you tell me about that standoff in the film? It's, uh, it's, it's pretty scary. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it yeah. introduces like, um, it introduces some new theories as to what's happening. Well, yeah, look, I, I love the character of Danny because, I, again, I think I've seen and met people like that in my life. Um, <laughs> and again, could be a uniquely a unique invention of, uh, of our modern world. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think a person who's so down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and that paranoid that they're they're kind of making their own kind of bunkers and their own safe houses um, is something pretty pretty interesting and 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 the the fear in writing a character like that was that he could be a character you know like um and 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 you know casting kevin bacon who somehow found a way to make this guy feel three-dimensional because i certainly won't take credit for it because i don't think i don't think I, I found it on the page but kevin definitely in his performance found him to be a real person and and that really came from the place of Danny is doing this to protect his family, which is what GH is doing, which is what Clay is doing, which is what Amanda is doing. And so <clears throat> that whole standoff is about that. It's about um, uh, people fighting for their families. And when we made the scene about that, 
it all of a sudden, I think Ethan and Mahershala and, um, and Kevin really found their North star. And I personally think that that scene works because you understand everyone's point of view. There's not like a mustache twirly villain in that scene. Everyone has a point. Everyone, um, everyone has a, a justifiable reason as to why they're doing what they're doing. And it's crazy when you watch a standoff and you can root for both sides. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no wrong answer there. I think that's a great place to put an audience member in. Yeah. I think what's interesting about it is, um, his theories, which are again, informed by his paranoia as someone who probably is too far down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and has been for years. It adds to like this overwhelm of theories as to what's going on. Like right. at every juncture in the movie, you've got Ruth suggesting it's something to do with power plants. And there are different kind of suggestions at every turn for who's doing this and what exactly they are doing. Can you talk to me about like, um, overwhelming the viewer with possibilities for what could be happening and then the decision to completely withhold well it's 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 the part that of the movie that i wanted to protect because it's it, it, the ambiguity that happens in the film is is completely intentional because it is what happens in life we, you know, I didn't pull conspiracy theories out of my ass. This is something <laughs> that people do naturally on a daily basis. They read into things, they question things, they come up with theories on why things ha are happening, even if it's innocuous. Um, and sometimes they're right. I'm not going to say that every conspiracy theory is bullshit. There are there are times where we can we legitimately should question. Uh, things and 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 there might be answers that really shock us and so um and so the ambiguity that the movie ends on um really is meant to reflect how life sort of never gives us easy answers and solutions um i mean hell uh, you know the pandemic for example is something that i still don't wrap my head around on exactly how that happened how it, uh, how it started and i don't even know if there is a real answer or consensus on that right now um and we may never know and that's something kevin says in that scene you know we may never know what's going on um that that feeling is the most horrifying and terrifying that, that i think that, honestly that's why conspiracy theories are on the rise because there's so much to question and there's so much mystery in our world that conspiracy theories give us a sense of control um because we're we feel sort of helpless and lost without it um but that is that is that is sort of how we have to navigate the modern world right now so um so I love that line that Kevin says uh, that, you know, that Danny says at the end where he says, you know, um, we may never know. I think, honestly, the movie ends on that note. Um, there's a million different explanations. GH gives one in the car that seems pretty backed up, in fact. But the movie still does not. It doesn't pull punches. It doesn't it doesn't kind of pull out and say, yes, GH was right. It lets it linger and leaves it up to you to sort of decide on your interpretation of what's going on. One thing that's floated that, that does feel true, that feels in fact true to real life is um, when GH gives that speech about kind of reading the curve and uh, he tells that story to Amanda about um, his, his very rich client who we definitely recognize the name of um, <laughs> that, that whole element of like the rich, the wealthy, the elite getting a heads up in a situation like this. And also that line in there about the, the, the sort of terror of no one being in control. Those feel incredibly resonant to our world today. Can, can you tell me about writing that scene? You know, honestly, that was weirdly a reaction to um, uh, as for the, the way Mr. Robot w was received, because I would say... Um, Elliot in that show definitely believed there is like this cabal of people who are pulling the strings and, um, and a lot of people came away, uh, from the show thinking, yeah, that's what's happening in our world. And I personally, I mean, if that were true, I think actually I'd feel better because then, okay, we know that 10 or 20 rich assholes maybe are in control. At least someone's in control. And we just, if we, appeal to them uh we can fix everything but to me my strong belief is that no such cabal exists 
uh, no one's in control and that's even fucking scarier. And how do we, uh, and, and how do we reconcile with that? Um, and, 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 and it's, that, that's the kind of tug of war the film, you know, goes back and forth on is, um, are we in control? Can we get out of this? No, we, you know, it's like, it's like that scene in the, on the beach, you know, they see the ship coming towards them. They see the oil tanker. Rose keeps mentioning it. No one, no one seems to care. Then at the very last minute, it's really up and close and they're still kind of questioning, well, it's going to stop. Right. <laughs> um, and then eventually they're like, okay, we're going to get up and go. And that's the thing. It's, 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 it's it's how we we really we really want to feel that we're in control we really want to feel other people are in control of whatever else is going on in the world but the truth of the matter is uh there isn't any sort of singular body of people that can help us out of this and that we have to figure out a way to just get up ourselves and 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 kind of and kind of figure it out for ourselves. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the sort of tug of war. I think that the characters go through throughout the story. They absolutely do. Because one thing that's interesting that again, subverts what we expect from a disaster movie is typically in, in these films, we have like the disaster happens and it happens in the opening act. And then the characters take charge of their situation and they find kind of ways to exert their agency on the situation and find refuge or, or make their situation better. Mm. In this movie, every single thing they try and do to kind of better their situation is completely futile. Like Clay going for a drive, he just ends up back at the house with nothing achieved. Um, GH trying to uh, go find that satellite phone, it, it doesn't work. And more to the point, it exposes the ridiculousness of when there's a problem with technology that's disrupted society. Our only answer is to kind of reach for more technology. Right. Um, was that kind of a purposeful thing? Did yeah, you want absolutely. to turn that on its head that way? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like Clay, just to just to take just to piggyback on that, Clay wanting to just to go to a store to pick up a newspaper or talk to someone, <laughs> he fucking can't do it because the GPS isn't working. Now, listen, a GPS, this, this is why I always say this film is like exploring uniquely modern issues because we used to be able to drive around without a GPS, not, not that long ago. I mean, I, when I was in high school, I didn't have a GPS. I, I had to, I had to know my way around town, you Man, know, I've been to this hotel and done interviews here for like 10 years and I was still using Google maps to get here. So I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's, and, and so to me it is that, uh, you know, well, without tech, we, we, we feel lost, but then we, we reach out for more tech to help us. And, and it's that grasp and that reach and that sort of, okay, once that's all gone, then what do you do? Um, and what do our characters do? They retreat and they feel like Clay says at the end of the film, he feels like a useless man without his GPS and cell phone. And I think ultimately that's the conclusion of that is that how many people can agree with Clay in that line? I mean, I know I can. Um, I feel hel helpless without my technology. Um, so what happens? What happens when it's gone away? What happens when it's stripped away? What are we left with? And and what does that say about our over-reliance on technology? Because the technology is growing in an exponential way. And alongside that, our reliance is growing. Um, and we're going to reach a breaking point and we have to kind of decide how we want to use tech in our favor rather than being our crutch. Getting towards the end of the film, how did you uh, work out the kind of way to deliver something satisfying in terms of, for, for some reason, after a film in which there's so much uncertainty, there's almost a relief in the certainty of seeing the disaster in front of us when we have that shot with the camera panning up and we get to see what I believe is New York, like, yeah. you know, completely ablaze. It, it's so powerful and it is like weirdly like a release mm -hmm. after so much pent up, you mm -hmm. know, uh, fear. Can you talk to me about like finding that scene and, and how you approached it? You know, I wanted to put a point on, or, or I should say a period on, uh, on the disaster on, on how on the evolution of the disaster, I guess. Like I, I we saw these glimpses of uh, of these different events, and it needed to build to a, a climax, and that was the climax. That that is that is honestly uh, for the, these characters 
they are now seeing probably the biggest city in the country, um, like you said, a blaze. Um, it's c- confirmed that this we've crossed the Rubicon here. There, the, you know, the, the point of that shot was to say uh, th- this is the point of no return. Right? Life is not going to go back to normal. This movie is not going to end uh, where they've conquered the disaster and uh, and life uh, returns back to the way it was in the beginning of the movie. Um, so it was meant to kind of, and it does it now, you know, we even visually did that where the camera just kind of glides over it and says, we are now moving to, uh, to a post apocalyptic world right now. Um, as we enter, enter the thorns house and meet up with Rose. Um, um, so as, as that was like a sort of period at the end of the sort of disaster, um, storyline of the film, we then sort of enter the thorns house uh where the movie then kind of ends more on a question mark of okay where do we go from here what what do we what do we what do we do about this or how do we feel about this and that was really can't you know that scene is obviously that was not in the book the 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 bunker scene um that i'm talking about when rose goes down in the bunker but um but the spirit of the way the book ended it was literally a question mark and it's it's something that i loved about the book that it was so open-ended and that it let it, you know my favorite movie going experiences is when i leave a movie and i want to go to a coffee shop to talk about it for two hours with my <laughs> friends um because there's so much interpretation so much left for interpretation and you can debate and have these and see the, these di- different ideas and different points of views and people can call about out the things that you missed and you can share the things that you saw that they may have not seen and then you can just have kind of a conversation about how it relates to the world and how it relates to us um when that a question mark at the end allows you to do that um when you when you answer everything and you give a solution and the characters overcome it movies like end like that all the time and i enjoy those movies but i feel like it closes the door on conversation i feel like you get out of that movie and you kind of forget about it you know a couple hours later or whatever and it's there's not much to talk about because the movie's given given you all the answers so in a weird way i you know the the way we ended it was something really exciting but really all at the same time really scary because i know i know certain audience members are going to see that and be really fucking pissed off <laughs> and i i think they're also you know weirdly i think because I've, I've been asked this before i think they think it was intentional like i wanted to fuck with them and it's not that you know just anybody listening to this right now <laughs> In all earnestness, I did not want to fuck with you. That wasn't the intent. It was really meant to say it's t- turning the story over to you and say, now you finish it. You tell me what what happens next. What is your interpretation? What's your takeaway? And to have that conversation, which is something that I think great movies can do. It ends on a question mark, but also a punchline. And one sure. of the funniest punchlines <laughs> I've seen in a film for a long time. Can you talk me through the the evolution of this this friends joke? For me, it's so multi layered. Look, I've, first I came came up with it because Rose's journey was really about these sort of parasocial relationships she has with these fictional characters, which I thought was so sweet and endearing, and you know. Again, pretty universal. What do we do in moments of crises? I mean, at the time during the pandemic, we all watched Tiger King and talked about that. You know, this like kind of ridiculous reality show or, you know, docuseries um, that we all found comfort in um, when we when we were scared for our lives and scared for the lives of our loved ones. Um, we watched this ridiculous show because we needed to 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 find a community community in something we needed something that we could all agree on and for rose i love that she had this really sweet yearning for these characters not necessarily because she wanted to know how it ended but because and she says it's to to archie um in the in the in the in the bedroom scene um because she hopes that they turn out okay she actually cares about them as if they're people now to me, that's really sweet. That's really endearing. But is that also incredibly dysfunctional that she feels so detached and disconnected from her own family that she'd rather find out what happens with uh, these fictional characters than she would? I mean, you know, she hears her. She she potentially heard her mom 
call out her name, but she chooses to go down to this bunker anyway, and she chooses to just play friends anyway. So there's that side of it. There's also a line that Ruth says earlier about how friends is nostalgic for a time that never existed, Yeah, which, which I, you know, for me was meant to say, yes, we can escape to our comfort food. We can escape to these shows, but we have to, you know, to some extent, a lot of people take those shows and say, oh man, it was so much better back then. Well, that's not really what reality was back then that was their version of reality and are we mixing our memories and our fantasy you know and our fantasies together and um so it, it was like this sort of it was sort of this like multi-layered thing but the emotional through line was really about this escape that after all this bleakness and all this uncertainty, the one thing, the one thing we do know, the one thing that we can have an ending to that will answer all our questions <laughs> is the series finale of Friends. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately. I've got to let you go. But um, let me just say this. Congratulations again on Leave the World Behind. It really is such a fantastic film. And uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on Script Apart. Thank you. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.